Hello, everyone. Welcome to a, a special episode today on Arash's World. And we have not one, but two guests uh, coming here and talking about some, some very current and very important information here. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Emily Basha and the Honorable Paul E. Johnson. Welcome to Arash's World. Thank you for having us. Thank you for being here. So I, I would like you to briefly introduce yourself in any way you see fit for our audience here. How would you describe yourself? Maybe, uh, Emily, if you can get us started here, please. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my background is Jewish Iraqi. Uh, my parents uh, survived persecution and attempted genocide in Iraq as being a persecuted minority during the rise of the Ba'ath Party. Um, and our immigrants and their story of survival really supported me to go into psychology and working with immigrants um, and also in the criminal courts doing forensic evaluations and working really to understand the people that society has rejected, um, that there is a place in our community for them um, and to really understand what brings people to do some of the things that they're drawn to do, and maybe even some of the evil that we see them committing, because Paul and I really both believe that we all have this potential to be good or evil, and this is all within us, and it's really a matter of choice, and there is a shared humanity. And it, it brought us to write our book, Addictive Ideologies, um, Paul's perspective is from the political side. Mine is from the psychological side. Uh, and we've looked at forms of extremism, genocide in the world, uh, my work in working with people who are uh, being convicted or charged with acts of terrorism, and really understanding what are those psychological processes that drive people? I do also have a clinical practice uh, that I work with people on an individual basis. Uh, and we also do have a podcast that we co-host, The Optimistic American, where we're really trying to give teachings and um, learnings and wisdom and things that we've both learned from all of our experiences uh, to have these golden uh, pieces of wisdom for people to improve their lives and create a life of meaning and purpose and value. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Wonderful. And yeah, Paul. Uh, let's see. Well, my, uh, my parents both when they were, my dad, when he was seven and his brother was 11, they hitchhiked out to Arizona from Pennsylvania. Their mother had died. He shined shoes in downtown Phoenix. Um, the, uh, we grew up in kind of a, lower income, poor neighborhood in Phoenix, but we had nine brothers and sisters. Um, I was fortunate enough to have parents who were pretty actively engaged in kind of what we were doing. I ended up becoming mayor of the city of Phoenix when I was 29 years old. Um, I spent a lot of time in politics. I've worked in presidential campaigns. Uh, I've worked in a lot of nonpartisan movements trying to help independents get more engaged in the political process. I'm actually involved in a number of those processes now. And I've just had for a long period of time a keen interest, not only in politics, but specifically in individuals who are, uh, who are driven more towards extremist types of, uh, of activities. 
Uh, I've been around the world. I've been to most of the major genocide sites in the world. I've studied them, looked at them, tried to understand what was happening with them. Dr. Basha and I both have an interest in the same thing. The book that we wrote really is about this intersection that exists between genocide, terrorism, and extremist movements. Um, I think if you were looking at the major question that we're asking in the book, it relates to a story that was given to us by one Holocaust survivor or one genocide survivor in Bosnia. And he was talking about, uh, we, have, uh, we knew that there were trenches that were being dug all over Bosnia because Milosevic was taking people and creating mass graves from them. But a group of our soldiers came up to a large ditch where there were about 15 or 20 people with shovels and backhoes pushing dirt over into the, the ditch itself. Um, and when the soldiers came up, the, the people ran away. By the way, none of the others were soldiers. They were just putting dirt down into the ditch. When the soldiers got up there, there were people in the ditch that were still alive, children, babies that were still alive. And I think the question that we're trying to ask is, how, do you, how does that happen? How do people get there? How do normal, average people get to that place where that type of thing happens? Uh, no, and uh, just to remind everyone, your book is called Addictive Ideologies, Finding Meaning and Agency When Politics Fail You. And uh, I, I do think you, you are the perfect combo here, the perfect match because of, again, uh, your experiences with politics and policy, as well as psychology, uh, the background of it. So we get a glimpse from, from, from both sides. And it's, it's what you're saying is, is really like, it's, it's, it's horrendous stuff that is happening. And we, we try to come to terms with it. And what I love also is your outlook, because your podcast is called The Optimistic American. So you, uh, the, the, the look of it, of seeing it, despite of all these like, things that are going on, there is a silver lining. And, uh, but at the same time, we do have to be aware that there's a dark side as well. I love what Emily, what you were saying about the choice. And I think often we overlook it or we forget that there is a choice and we do have uh, a choice in many matters in our lives and our decision making even like minor decisions and so on so one of the first things i want to start off with because you you have the title politics fail you um so when we turn on the tv it's usually really really bad stuff that makes us feel depressed but we do want to be uh, um, stay in touch with what's happening in the world. So how can we find a balance there so it doesn't affect us uh, in, a, in a negative way? Uh, all these like onslaught of bad news that we get through the media. What can we do? Yeah, that's a really important question. Paul and I do discuss this um, in the book. We really highlight there is a benefit to the agenda that that's in the media outlets, it's on social media, it's on the nightly news, um, it's in the political campaigns. And so really understanding that there's this agenda and push um, can help to preserve your own individuality in this and not being 100% persuaded um, by these fear tactics that are being used to help override your thought process. Um, because as we know from neuroscience research, when you're made to feel terrified or you feel like there's some kind of existential threat, um, you're not really going to be activating your frontal lobe 
as well as your amygdala. And so there's this process called the amygdala hijack where um, your limbic system, it's the more primitive part of your brain. And it's really there to help your survival. So we don't want it to go away, but it programs you to go into this fight, flight, freeze response. And so you're not really going to be thinking as clearly if you can remind yourself like, hey, there's an agenda here. They're really trying to persuade me. Let me take a step back and look at this more objectively. The important thing is have a difference of opinions that you have conversations with people who disagree with you because they can help you find that more balanced perspective. Once you start isolating yourself or um, going to more extreme content, uh, finding yourself engaging in more hate speech, seeing out group members is more um, homogenous. So meaning that you see them as all the same, like all women um, or all Jews or all, all black people are this way. Uh, that's really dangerous, uh, engaging in that kind of thinking, because you're starting to lose um, sight of the shared humanity. You don't see the individual differences in those groups. And it's just going to propel you more towards that extremist content. So being really conscientious of how much you're allowing yourself to really watch um, in order to stay informed. And there's so many different kinds of media sites and outlets now, um, the podcast, really great podcasts. Uh, you can look at international uh, news outlets to really try and get a varied source of information. Um, but just know that there are agendas that are being pushed out there. Yeah. Yeah. And I was wondering about in politics, too, with open dialogue is something diplomacy. Those are things that we cherish. Well, we don't see it from politicians. So from your background experience, how can we have that too? And in, 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 of opening up and talking about things without going on the defensive and attacking the others. And we see that they're very entrenched in, in their own kind of group basis. So what can we do about that? Well, um, I, I think the beginning point is to know the truth, it's to understand the truth. Um, and look, I, I spent a long time in politics. It's, it's not new that politicians utilize the negative bias to try to influence people. The negative bias is a much easier place for us to be able to affect the psychology of a human being. And, you know, Emily spoke about it. The amygdala hijack is something that, uh, that gets to, once you can engage somebody in being terrorized, that fight, flight, or freeze instinct takes place. And it hijacks the portion of the brain where we have optimism, rationality, uh, where we're innovative, where we're creative. There's an incentive for politicians, political parties, the news media, social media to take you down that path. Now, that doesn't mean that the things that they are telling you are untrue, but they are almost always out of perspective. If you look at what's going on in the United States today, there is no better place nor better time to be alive than right here and right now. I mean, I can walk you through statistics and numbers and show you what's taking place in our, uh, in, in where we are from a world power standpoint, why it is that we're not in danger of losing the world's reserve currency, uh, why it is that we're not even as divided as you might think that we are. But that's not the message that those groups wanna give you. They wanna give you this extremely negative message because they want you to watch their program tomorrow. So you, it's part of the goal here is that 
you have to take some responsibility to find other outlets, to find other ways to get good information. You're probably not going to find it on, on the nightly networks where you know you have these talk show hosts that aren't really giving you news. They're trying to persuade you into being involved in one psychology or the other, one philosophy or the other. You know, our book, what we tried to do in our book is when we were looking at what the connection was between these three things, we found a couple of, of uh, connectors. The first one was almost all genocides, acts of terrorism and extreme ideologies or extremist movements are tied up in an ideology. Number two, those ideologies that are the most dangerous are the ones that tend to uh, look at people based upon their group identity as opposed to their individual identity. By the way, that happens in the right and the left in this country. You have you know, the, what's going on with woke culture, which has some definitional issues to it on the left. You have what's going on with the alt-right. But both of them see the world in terms of an oppressed and an oppressor. Well, once you get to that, it becomes much easier to objectify the other group because as Emily was talking about, each of us have good and evil inside of us. But when we begin to externalize this in an, an ideology, we begin to say it's the other group that's evil and I'm part of something that's going on that's good. Rational thought rarely fits into an ideology. There, there's a rationale to ideologies on the right and the left. And, it, and again, it's generally trying to appeal to uh, to what they hope are victims or people that they're trying to turn into victims because they need them to believe that the oppressor is that guy that's standing over there, that person that's standing over there. The reality is that once you start to take agency for yourself, once you begin to recognize that you really have control over your own, uh, your own outcome for the most part in this country, that there are very few external factors that are really going to destroy us, and once you begin to recognize that the world is in a much better place than you might have guessed, it gives you the ability to look at issues from a very different perspective and to be life-changing because of it. I, I, I love everything you're saying, and I, I completely agree with you. And I think this black and white thinking, and I've mentioned it various times in, in this podcast, and I've had uh, um, and many, many psychologists talk about that too, that we, we're led by our emotions, but we're not thinking rationally. We're not even, these are, these are just like uh, emotions that are coming from, from fear and anxiety and we're on the defensive. And that idea of seeing like you're either with us or against us or black and white issues, when in reality it's much more colorful than that. And so one thing that, uh, one of the books that I read was called uh, The Wealth of Religions. And it looks at how we want to belong. With our, our ideology goes with belonging. And there's an interesting idea. And I'd like to, I mean, I've been fascinated by cults too, how it happens, how uh, smart people, rational people, people who are educated, get uh, trapped in that. And it's not a simple matter of brainwashing. I think it's, it's much deeper than that too. And so uh, the, the club model was uh, proposed by Lawrence Giannacone, I believe. And he says that we like to belong to a particular group. And uh, the more distinguished the group becomes, the more sacrifices we have to make for it, the stronger our cohesion becomes, and the more entrenched we are, and then we see the other as the enemy, so the us versus them. So you can see that with, with the various religions where you stand out, and then you 
are seeing the others as, as somebody who's opposing you, but you are really embedded in that group. So um, I, I think that is dangerous because you do also lose your individuality and something that was mentioned here too, and your choice because you go with that group. Uh, maybe Emily, we can uh, maybe talk a bit more about that. How does that work? Why do we become so much, and we can see the two, the two groups you're talking about, the extremists, both on the left as well as on the right, and they're separating themselves uh, uh, into their own camps. So what's happening there? What are the processes and what can we do to protect ourselves from falling into that way of thinking that is just like one-sided? Yeah, the danger in cults is that you give up a little bit of yourself at a time. And so you never really see um, the dramatic shifts and changes. It's um, like sorry, it's like the frog in the, the hot water, right? And it keeps like yeah. increasing the temperature. And by the time you notice it, it's probably too late. Yeah, absolutely. And so there are a lot of, um, you know, survivors who are coming out of cults who talk about these processes and how they just were searching for something and maybe even something went quite quite profound that they wanted some kind of self-importance, some kind of validation. Um, they wanted to do something purposeful with their lives, but yet something was really missing for them. Sometimes people who have gone through an extreme trauma or a loss or a death of a loved one have this gaping void in their life. And if you have a leader who's very charismatic and offers very simple solutions, um, it can be easier to really give them this rhetoric and this ideology and, and it becomes something that they internalize and adopt. The challenge is people who gravitate towards cults, they lose their identity that they had before it becomes replaced with this new identity. So in order to either prevent people from going too far to an extreme and become more radicalized, you really want to keep them connected to things that they used to do, things that give them joy and fulfillment, um, their family, that sense of belonging and commitment to community, um, especially if it's helping to nurture that sense of self-importance that what they're doing matters. Uh, the more that they can be rooted in those areas, that's going to really help prevent them from losing touch with their reality and getting pulled in. The danger, and this is part of this addictive model, is that people then start to surround themselves that have more extreme behaviors, more extreme radical ideologies. They start to isolate themselves from people that they used to be with, that think differently for, from them. And that there's this obsessional component and they continue to do things despite it hurting themselves and others that they love around them. So the more they become detached and, and then attached to this new identity and this radical ideology, um, and it's very dangerous. There is some neurological or neuroscience research to show that addictions um, tend to amplify dopamine in the brain and it gives people this kind of like shots of adrenaline um, and they maybe feel more powerful, uh, especially if they feel like they're in an argument and they feel like they're right all the time. And so they're seeking and searching for those same rushes um, and it's an activating hormone. It's an activating system, the dopaminergic system um, that's a pathway in the brain. And so 
they're enticed by that and they continue to want more of it. So really, you know, if you're having a sense of hopelessness, helplessness, that you have a loss of meaning and purpose, um, if you're isolating yourself, like all of those things can be risk factors. And so what we want to do as interventions is really to help solidify and preserve the, your life, doing what you love, giving back to community, being grateful for who and, and what you have, um, belonging to a sense of community or shared purpose is important. All of those things will help to create some preventive protective factors for people. I think there is essentially a push and pull, like there's a push we want to fit in. And then we also want to be ourselves and preserve our individuality. And I think that's like the human dilemma of like not going too far in either direction, because if you go into completely individualistic, then you you have no contact with reality. But if you go too far into it, you end up in a cult. So so uh, finding that that right balance, which is really hard, but also the, the idea of cognitive dissonance. And when something does not seem right, to speak out, you know, and not be afraid. But the problem is, and uh, Paul, I want to get your view on that. When you do speak out and criticize your own camp, your own group, you get ostracized. So it seems like the, the radical point seems to prevail. Uh, and the, the more like moderate, more rational ways do not seem to survive this. And there's this like constant pressure. Um, how can we find that? That's important balance there. So so let me back up a little bit to try to answer that question. I, first, I'm a registered independent today. I used to be a registered uh, Democrat during the time I was mayor. Um, I've given up on the two political parties. And in, in fact, I think that they're both exacerbating the problem. They're making the problem worse because of the tribal instincts that are engaged in them. And if you want to solve the problem, you have to start with an empathy for both sides. I would tell you, before I get to the solution, I, I will tell you, I think that there's a solution both for a person who's already engaged in the ideology, and then there's the solutions that we need for the rest of us to, who aren't engaged in them to take part in. But one of the mistakes that government was making, and, and people in government, was the belief that what was driving these individuals was uh, fake, fake news. It was uh, conspiracy theories. It was uh, all of these things that people were saying that we knew was inaccurate. The thought was, hey, they're getting this inaccurate information, and that's kind of driving them down the wrong direction. What we know from looking back on this is that's not true. What happens is there was a there was a uh, there were individuals who, on either side, the right or the left, felt that they had been harmed by any one of a variety of things, but. As people begin to feel that they're socially ostracized, as they begin to feel that they're economically harmed, they begin to look for a solution. Now, I'm just going to pick out one group for a moment because we see it a lot on television, but I could easily pick out the left as well. When we think about the far right today, um, oftentimes people will, the criticism will be, well, look at these terrible people. How could they follow Trump? Well, let's start with this. The average uh, person who was engaged in the Trump campaign, a Trump supporter, was a white uh, male over the age of 50 who had less than $1,000 in his bank account. Now, if you start looking around the country, and I've campaigned all over the country, you go into places like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, you know, that the, the Rust Belt of the United States, you'll find that over that there are a lot of different people who over time have been laid off of their jobs. 
the steel mill closed, the coal mine closed, the, the factory closed. And so these people ended up being laid off or extremely stressed, which stressed the rest of the town because economically then everybody gets hurt. There are also other social issues that have begun to arise. Uh, the civil rights movement, which I've always been a supporter of civil rights, equal rights and human rights, but there's been an effect of them. If you look at things like affirmative action, right? All of a sudden they began to feel pressure from other people who might get the promotion or get the job before they would. And then it even got down to the point where now you have kind of this woke culture that talks about the patriarchy and white privilege as if if you were a white male, you automatically must not be able to understand and you must be privileged. Well, here's the thing. What you're really doing is you're shutting them up. You're trying to silence them. And that's isolating them. And as you do that, it is a, it is eventually somebody's going to come along and say, I see you. I see the pain that you have. I see how you're being treated. I see what's happening wrong to you. And when they do, once they see them, once they recognize them, they'll follow them regardless of how much they lie or they cheat or they steal. That need for recognition, especially when you've been isolated, is great. And that's what ideologies do. They attract people when they've gotten to that place. And how you turn someone into an extremist is the rest of us begin to go, oh, man, you can't even talk to them. So you start to back away from them. And that drives them more towards other individuals who are even more extreme. The result of that is oftentimes it turns to violence. And by the way, there are two types of violence. The, the violence on the right we watch when we watch the Capitol riots. We saw what that type of violence looked like. My argument would be the, uh, the idea of cancel culture. That's a very different type of violence. It's one where you're ruining somebody's reputation by calling them a racist or a bigot. Oftentimes without provocation, it's because they said something that you don't like or they look like someone that you don't want them to look like. I, I'd rather have somebody hit me in the head with their fist than I would destroy my reputation, right? If you destroy someone's reputation, it can be damaging to them for life. The point that I'm giving is that both these extreme groups, they're willing to use measures that harm other people. They don't really care whether they harm other people. And unfortunately, the people who are, who are maybe conservative or who are liberal inside the party, they feel this, they feel compelled to defend the extremes on their side. Yes. And there are multiple ways that they defend them. Yes. One is they outright defend them. But another way they do is they say, well, you know, look at the other side. They're much worse than our side. Look at the things that they're doing. The answer is you don't need to defend either one of these two groups. They're doing things that are excessive. They're doing things that are wrong. The, it, the truth is many people on the right and the left are much closer philosophically than they are to their extreme counterparts inside of their party. But that tribalism begins to make people feel that they have an obligation to support the person on their side, on their team. And that's being taken advantage of by people who are in those two extreme groups. And, and uh, Emily was mentioning here the uh, agenda. And I think everyone has an agenda and you're thinking of your own benefit, but you are also not looking at the truth or not looking at the facts and distorting them. And you can present them in a different and a biased way. And we have to be aware of that, that there's these like agendas. And by agenda, I mean simply 
for a media company to make more money. And they find the social media says, well, it works for us. It benefits us. And in the, but a lot of people are suffering because of that. And so a lot of, there's a lot of anger and aggression on, 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 on all the sides. And why can't we have a more like peaceful, one that's based on empathy of understanding the others? Because they're not all, again, black and white, they're good versus bad. It's not like that. And there are very, very good people in, in, in both sides, but we tend to lose sight of that. Uh, one thing that I had Sean Thompson on, on here uh, on my podcast who talks about the code, and he says, uh, he's a, a well-tended surfer, but he says, I will come up with 12 affirmations, or I will do the following things. And once you get deep down to the values, so what are the basic values we have? There's a lot of agreement. But instead, we don't focus on that. We just are driven by anger and frustration and uh, aggression in, in different forms and formats. How can we switch, Emily? How can we switch to the, to the more peaceful outlook, to a more optimistic one that, uh, that Paul is proposing here as well? Well, you know, feel being self-righteous and... Uh, Holier-than-thou yeah. attitude as well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that has an addictive component uh, to it as well. And it helps us to feel powerful. And so I would look at, well, what is the function that that is serving? But it doesn't make us happy, powerful? right? So that the feel of powerful is like the bully. Yeah, the bully feels powerful, but are they happy? No. I mean, they are very, very unhappy. And that's why they're behaving that way. Right. So the psychologist would uncover, well, what is right. the function of that behavior? And it's it's likely driven because the people are feeling powerless in their yeah. lives. And so if there's a more pro-social way, they can start to gain that sense of self-agency, that sense of pride in their work um, and feeling that sense of purposefulness. Um, and that they feel powerful or empowered to do those things that are, are pro-social, um, that are healthy and healing and helpful, then that's that's the way to really fix the problem. The quick fix is just to abuse the person, whether it's physically, verbally, psychologically, that is uh, less able to defend themselves um, and creates more provocation and conflict, but there's no real resolution. It's just about, let me, like, as Paul was saying, silence the opposition, um, as a way of winning. Well, if that's your frame of mind, it's either winning or losing. And the only way to win is to oppress and dominate and suppress the, the marginalized or quiet the opposition or kill the opposition, as we can see in more violent extreme forms, of radical movements, um, that's really dangerous. And again, it's a quick fix or a quick solution, but it's never really uncovering the deep root to the problem. Uh, and it takes work and, and you're giving up your agency. But I've seen, I've worked with people who are facing life sentences. They are not getting out of prison. And yet after they've committed whatever horrible crime they've committed, they've recognized and really reconciled what I did was wrong and, and I may never be forgiven, but I can still live a life worthy of living even in the confinements of my prison cell. And that might be mentoring new in prisoners, 
um, working and uh, committing myself to education and taking courses online and writing my family members, writing the survivors um, and doing things that have meaning. And there are those stories that are out there of people who have done horrific things in their lives and sure they're suffering the consequences, but it doesn't mean that they just give up living. Victor Frankl is a wonderful example of that. Um, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, he also really had to reconcile what he did was committing horrific crimes in the gulags and marching people to their deaths who were completely innocent. Um, and he recognized, what am I doing? I have a responsibility to play. I can't just blame this on my leadership and saying, well, I was following marching orders. No, you are the individual and you have a right to choose. Um, and, and I think that's really important is, you know, at the end of the day, looking at yourself and have you lived with courage? Have you lived with honor? And even when everyone else surrounding you is in disagreement or in opposition to you, are you just going to follow the status quo? Are you going to do what's needed to be a hero? This is drive My perfection. Do you have to start Paul? I don't want to interrupt. No, I was just going to, I was just going to add to that. So you know, when you think about the person who's deeply involved in the in, in the addictive ideology, again, on the right or the left, um, it, first, they've created a construct in their mind. And if you decide to try to pull them out of it by trying to uh, give them the truth or by trying to uh, put experts in front of them or to show them why their facts are wrong, not only are you not going to be successful, you actually may drive them more towards violence. It, it, it works just, in the reverse. Just to add to that, I think like the term also educating others, it's it's condescending. It means mm -hmm. that you're ignorant and I'm going to show you how things are done. And so I think even the word choice here, we have to be careful of not alienating others even further by saying you have no clue. Now I'm going to teach you how to do things. And that makes you, the other person feel superior because they are the teacher and you are the student. So maybe just that does not help open dialogue. But one thing I was going to get at is also the drive for perfection. It's the idea that you have to be a perfect human being, a perfect politician and so on and uh that is that is also not human it's not human and it's not helping us in any way because we do need to open we, we make mistakes and we need to be open about that and not see it as a failing but actually as a strength when you admit to it and you learn from it as you are saying with emily with with people who have made profound mistakes but everyone needs a second and third chance and being open to talk about it, instead of trying to hide that with like toxic masculinity, just to use another term, because you're trying to overcome your own weaknesses and failings and you try to cover them up. So how can we be more authentic and be accepted by others for that? So if, if your goal is that you don't like the divisions in our country, mm -hmm. if, you're, if you look at what's going on and you believe that it's a problem and that we need to work on it, um, that's the role that we have created what we call the seven ideals for. It's, that's the person that we've created them for. You know, if, if you want to, uh, if you want to stop, if you believe that you're, uh, that you want to be patriotic, I think it would start by quit insulting other Americans, right? That's the beginning place. Uh, it's understanding that, um, that we each have a role of accountability that we have to take on, that all of us have good and evil inside of us. 
And instead of looking at what the other side is doing wrong, we need to look at ourselves. We need to think about the things that we do wrong. Now, I've, I've made mistakes myself, and here's what I can tell you. One of the things I figured out is um, quit harming the people that I care about for people I don't even know. Quit insulting people that I care about and that I love for people I don't even know. You know, that's these political races that we watch. We used to watch them just for four or five months before the race, and then we'd turn it back off, right? But today it's 24 seven news breaking cycles where we're watching things on television. You go online, it takes you down these rabbit holes, tweets that are coming out every 10 minutes and everything's existential telling you about how the world is gonna end if the other side gains control. Here's the truth, that's not going to happen. The United States is in a much better position than you could really ever possibly imagine. The world is gonna do okay, even if you don't keep watching politics, but don't let yourself get sucked into it and, and as you do, at least recognize that you have the ability to be evil to other people. The second thing that is important is to try to know the truth, to know what the real facts are and what's going on in terms of our society. The third one is, Emily mentioned it, it's find meaning. We find meaning in four areas. We find meaning in who and what we love. We find meaning in what it is that we create. We find meaning in service to other people. And we find meaning through our struggles. It's also through love and connection. You know, Martin Luther King talked about the importance of loving people, loving your enemies. You know, they're, 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 the Greeks had seven different words that they used for love, but Martin Luther King broke it down into three. He said there was romantic love, there was, uh, there was philia, which was brotherly love, and then he said there was agape, this idea that we can love people that we don't even know. Now, that seems to be very difficult to do. But what he figured out was that when the other side is shouting racial epithets at you, when they're, when they're throwing things at you, that if you do the same thing back to them first, the rest of the world doesn't know who started it. All right, They can't figure it out. They just see these two groups that are fighting. And two, there's almost no defense to love. Right, There's a lot of defenses to anger, but there are very few defenses to love. Cut people a break. The people who are engaged in this, listen to them. Try to understand where they're coming from. Try to be empathetic to them. And then see if you can get them back on their other goals. Don't try to change their ideology. See if you can get them back on the goals that matter, their children, their family, the people that love them, the people that they love, their job, their, the things that they're going to create. Pulling them back in that direction is important. And then you talked about belonging. Look, what we belong to is awesome. As Americans, just the idea that we belong to this country, we have an incredible history. There's, I'm not saying that it's all perfect. The reason that we have the optimistic American isn't to tell people, it's not to be Pollyannish and to believe that, that there are no problems. But the people who are going to solve problems over and again in history are the people that believe that you can solve those problems. That's what makes our history amazing, is the fact that we've been able to identify problems and have people who believe that we could solve them, and we did. We have a set of problems today. We can solve those too with people who believe that we can solve them.
Well, it seems like we have the negative bias. It's like a filter we're wearing over our eyes. It's like shades and we see everything like a, a much darker than it actually is. And I think when we, again, focus on things, all the good things that uh, we, we overlook when we end that negative stance, there's so much we can do. And I've had uh, discussions with people who were aggressive and angry, angry, but when I was calm and centered in that moment, it kind of and it reminds me of mysticism, what you're saying, Paul, here, looking inward and kind of grounding yourself, then I find their anger actually dissipates because there is no confrontation. And often you get into a confrontation at some point you say, well, what was this all about? I don't know why we fought because it was probably something that didn't matter in the first place, but it's just our own frustrations and lack of being heard, being understood by the others. Um, what can we do here briefly because we're running out of time, Emily, what would be here a uh, uh, final advice or suggestion you would uh, you would give our audience here to to overcome that that uh, uh, need to defend ourselves, to be on the defensive, to respond to aggression in many ways. What can we do to to ground ourselves in that sense? I'm gonna say two things. Mm -hmm. um, one is, I would say to the person that you're having a conflict with, and this could be your husband, your wife, your mother, your father, your, your brother, your sister, um, tell them that they're right. Like find the truth in what they're saying and validate it for them. You will do more in that instance to help find where you have a shared commonality and a shared understanding and respect and even admiration um, and do it authentically. Uh, number two, I would say, allow yourself to be transformed by their story. This, I think, is the greatest gift that I can give anyone that I'm working with. Uh, I think also no just to listen, you know, just like just like put away all your own like judgments and biases and experience and just like openly listen and just say, OK, what is it you're trying to communicate? Because often it's not what they're saying. It's something else. It's something that's underlying there. And like try to dig into that, I think. And uh yeah, exactly. I think that's that's important. And it's not about being right or wrong. It's about having an open dialogue, a conversation of a common, common ground there. And as you say, I think there's like, I see sides from both sides. They're both correct and incorrect at the same time, but it shouldn't really matter when you meet on a human level, right? And what, what would you say, Paul? Um, you know, what I would tell you is, is that I think that you're, you're on the right place. Look, Democrats, I find that Democrats and Republicans both have a value. Um, Democrats tend to think of uh, what, what's important for people. Right? What do we need to do in education or what do we need to do in psychology or, or in other areas that, that affect human beings? Republicans tend to think about things in terms of the human spirit. Now, I, I think both of those are important. The human spirit in terms that they're concerned about jobs and economic development and how we can create and innovate and how we can release those powers on the other side. I look back at Jefferson and Adams, you know, both of them were in a, a huge fight, but yeah. the country wouldn't be the same had both of them not been there. Each of us bring something to the table. And, and part of what we have to do to be able to gain their gifts is to listen to them. And it is true. Sometimes they'll say things that make you feel a little crazy, that, that upset you because it, 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 it is an affront to some of the values that you have. But Go beyond that and listen to them and try to dig into who they are. What I found is that, again, there's no defense to love. There just isn't. And if you're willing to be kind to other people, that in itself begins to make a huge difference in terms of our political dialogue and our debate.
Mm-hmm. And we can take that first step. It's in our hands. It's, it's our it's our choice. And then see what the reaction is. And it's usually a ripple effect. You 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 you'll see things that you didn't expect, and uh, in the others, and they will appreciate it. I very much appreciate talking to both of you. And it gives me when it, when I talk to people like you, it gives more hope because we it's not as bleak as we think it is. There is uh, especially your your focus here on optimism and your book that sheds light into these processes. Thank you so much for being a Russia's world. Uh, I want to remind everyone the book is Addictive Ideologies, Finding Meaning and Agency When Politics Fail You. Uh, Dr. Emily Basha and the Honorable Polly Johnson, thank you so much for being in Arash's world. I feel like we could talk uh, much more about this. So I invite you to come again at any point if you have the time. Uh, we would really appreciate to, to delve deeper into this. But thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Arash. Such a pleasure. Sarah.